Hey, good morning, Cal Prairie. This is Pastor Chris, and I'd like to welcome you guys to the third message in our series entitled Perfectly Imperfect. And as I explained last week, the idea behind this series is that nobody's perfect. You're imperfect. I'm imperfect. And so the relationships that we have are also going to be imperfect. And sometimes I think we get caught in the trap of having these big idealistic goals for our relationships. We want them all to look like a Hallmark movie, but they never do. And so we find ourselves discouraged. So the challenge of this series is how do we accept each other's imperfections, accept the imperfections of the relationship itself, and then strive to be perfectly imperfect. And, and last week, as part of that, I talked about the need to sometimes have crucial conversations, to have difficult conversations about the imperfections in our relationships. And I think it went over pretty well. Uh, we talked about how to do that. We have to have three conversations. We have to have a conversation with God. We have to have a conversation with ourselves. And then we have to have a conversation with that other person. And what we were going to do this week was build on that. Uh, the original title of this message was The Power of Words. And we were going to dive into choosing our language and, and how to do that. But something really interesting happened. Uh, as I finished preaching last Sunday here in the building, uh, two different people at two different times in two different places came up to me, both tearful, asking the same question. What do we do when we need to have a crucial conversation with someone but they're not willing to have that conversation. What, what do we do then? And you could tell that there was a lot of pain and a lot of heartbreak behind what they were asking. And I tried to give them an answer on the spot. I'm sure it wasn't enough. Hopefully there was a little insight in it. But as I drove home, I began to, to think about what they had asked. And I began to I'll just meditate on that a little bit. And it struck me. That if two people came up to me after that message, within just a few minutes of each other, with the same exact question, there's a good chance that more people were also asking that question. Maybe some of you online were asking that question. If you were, maybe just click the heart button right now. Let me know that it wasn't just them. See, we had a conversation when I was in seminary. It was kind of a debate in one of my classes. And the question was this, what is a sermon? And part of the class said, well, a sermon is the thing that you write, you prepare earlier in the week. That, that's a sermon. And another part of the class said, no, a sermon is what happens when you get up on Sunday morning and you speak those words to a congregation that hears them. Like, it's that interaction that makes it a sermon. Before that, it's just a lesson. And we went back and forth. Now, personally, I tend to fall in that latter camp. But I think that as a preacher, I'm not just a talker. Hopefully, I'm also a leader. And part of being a leader is being a listener and responding to what you hear, making adjustments, like a shepherd with his sheep, working to guide where they need to go. And with that in mind, I thought about those questions that were asked, and I thought about this week, and I decided to scrap the original message that I had planned, 
the power of words, and instead take time to talk about what we do when we have a relationship that we want to be perfectly imperfect, but the other person doesn't desire that. We need to have a crucial conversation, but they're unwilling to come to the table. And so today we're going we're gonna to talk about when to walk and when to wait. So what do you do when they don't want to talk? What do you do when they're unwilling to come to the table? Well, one option is that you just keep talking to them anyway. And you'll see that in relationships where one person just keeps going on and on and reaching out over and over. Um, the other person still isn't willing. And I don't think that's the method we want to go with. Because you, you know what comes to mind when I think about a one-way conversation? This right here. This, this is a megaphone. This is the symbol of a one-way conversation. And as part of Team World Vision, our running group here at the church, uh, I've had an opportunity to use a megaphone a lot. We use it to cheer our runners on. So if you come out here any day in the summer, on a Saturday morning, uh, we are out here running, you will see me holding this megaphone, yelling and cheering our runners in. I have a lot of experience with this guy. But here's what happens when people hear a megaphone too much. One of two things happens. One, they start to ignore it. I remember a few years ago, I took a group of our youth down to what is now the T-Mobile Center for Winter Jam. It's a big festival with a bunch of Christian artists that come and play. And we were waiting outside for the doors to open up. It's usually a pretty long wait because the seats are kind of first come, first serve. And while we were there, uh, there was a group of Christians, I'm going to put that kind of in air quotes, Christians, uh, who had come down there and they had literally set up like soap boxes, like, like wood boxes that they were standing on. And they stood on them with a big PA system and a megaphone. Um, and they were just yelling at us about how the kind of music that we were listening to, even though it was Christian, uh, the kind of music uh, was going to send us to hell. Uh, and they were informing us of all of our sins and all the things that we were doing that God hates. And they went on and on and on for what felt like hours. But this kind of crazy thing happened. Even though they never stopped talking, we all stopped listening. And it just kind of faded into the background. It was just noise amongst all the other noise. So sometimes when we pick up our megaphone and continue to have a one-way conversation, the person we're trying to talk to just, well, they don't hear us anymore. Our voice just fades into the background. It isn't meaningful in their life. Another quick story for you. A few years ago, I was at a Team World Vision event here. Uh, we held it at a park, and so we were doing our race at a park. Um, but there were also other people just at the park out running just for the heck of it. Uh, I was standing on one of the corners, and I was cheering our runners as they came by. And I'm a little over the top, if you've ever heard me cheer. That's hard to believe, but you know, I like to get a little crazy. Our runners deserve it. And so I'm doing that. I'm just yelling on them and, and telling them how awesome they are and how great they're doing. And I'm doing that to this one guy. And he finally gets up to me just a few feet away, and he looks at me. And dead serious, he goes, you are effing annoying. He didn't use the word effing. He actually used the real word. And then he just kept going. 
And I came to realize that he wasn't a part of our group. He was just there at the park and apparently did not appreciate uh, my use of a megaphone. And that's what happens um, sometimes when you hear a one-way conversation is that it just gets really annoying to the point that it sparks aggression. And maybe you've had someone in your life before where you didn't want to hear them anymore, but they kept talking. And eventually, their voice made you angry. And so I want us to be careful uh, when we feel like we need to have a crucial conversation, but the other person isn't willing. Because if we just keep trying to talk to them uh, without being a little more thoughtful about it, we're like the megaphone. And eventually they'll stop hearing us or they'll get angry with us. And I don't want either of those things to happen. So instead, like I said today, we're going to talk about when to walk and when to wait. And then I'm going to end with a story that I hope is kind of powerful. Uh, an example of, of God working in this way. Now to do this, I'm going to share with you two parables. One is a fable uh, written by a Jewish teacher. Um, and another is a scriptural parable, uh, a story told by Jesus. Uh, the first one here, this fable, is entitled The Bridge. And I'm going to read a little of it and paraphrase a little of it. But I want you to pay attention because this story has had a profound impact on my life and my faith and my decision making. Um, but it starts out like this. That there was a man who had given much thought to what he wanted from life. He had experienced many moods and trials. He had experimented with different ways of living. He had had his share of both success and failure. But at last, he began to clearly see where he wanted to go. So diligently, he searched for the right opportunity. Sometimes he came close only to be pushed away. Often he applied his strength and imagination only to find the path hopelessly blocked. And then at last it came. But the opportunity would not wait. It would only be available for a short time. If it were seen that he was not committed, the opportunity would not come again. Now, I relate to this guy in this story. In a modern context, this is the person who's changed their major three times, who's on their third career, who's searching for what it is in life that's going to fulfill them, their calling, their passion, that thing that makes them feel alive. And it says he's tried a lot of things, some successful, some failure. But then he finally realizes what it is. The opportunity has presented itself. The door has opened that dream job. It's right there. But it's only going to be there for a limited amount of time. So, so he knows that he has got to get going on the journey. And so he does. He sets out. It says in the fable that he finds energy he hasn't had since his youth. That every step he takes, he wishes he could take a little faster. He cannot wait to get where he's going. But then, in the middle of the town, he comes across a bridge. It's a very high bridge. It was built so high so that when the floods of the spring would come through it, when 
it would still be safe to pass. So he's on this, this bridge, this very high bridge, walking over it. And as, he, as he's walking, he sees off in the distance someone running towards him, um, almost a little frantic. And, and this person, he can tell, well, it looks kind of like me, um, but a little different. And one of the things that's different is that there's something around his waist, and as the guy gets closer, he realizes, oh, it's a, it's a rope. He has a rope tied and wrapped around his, his waist. If you undid the rope, it was probably about 30 feet long. So unusual. And the man runs up, and he looks at you, and he said, would you do me a favor? Would you hold the end of this rope for a second? So the man confused and kind of unsure of what to do. He says, yeah, and he, he grabs a hold of it. And the man who had it tied around his waist, the other guy, says, uh, be sure you hold with both hands and, and get a really good grip. And, and as he places his second hand on the rope, the man jumps over the side of the bridge. So abrupt, it tugs the other guy's arms. He can barely catch himself. He gets to the edge. He's, he's using all of his weight to keep himself from falling over. As he regains his balance and catches his breath, he looks over the edge of the bridge, and there he sees the other guy dangling there 30 feet below, but yet still so high that if the rope would break, he would fall to his death. And he's, he's so confused. So he yells down, what are you trying to do? And the man yells up, just hold tight. This is ridiculous, the man thought. He, he's trying to pull him up. He's trying to get some leverage, but he realizes that, that he can't. They're, they're just close enough in weight that they're almost a counterweight to one another. So he yells down again, why, why did you do this? The man yells up, remember, if you let go, I'll be lost. He yells down, but I can't pull you up. I am your responsibility. He looks down, he says, I didn't ask for that. He repeats himself, if you let go, I'm lost. He, he doesn't know what to do. He's holding on to this rope. He knows his time is limited. The opportunity, the door is, is going to close. So he's, he's trying to see if there's anyone around who can help him. Or even if there's somewhere he could tie the rope to then go get help. But there's, there's nothing. And so he yells down again, what do you want? He yells up, just your help. Then the guy down there suggests, well, why don't you tie the rope around your waist? It might be easier. That way your arms won't get tired. Fearing his arms would get tired, he did that. He ties the rope around his waist. He yells down again, why did you do this? Don't you see what you've done? What possible purpose could you have had in mind? The man yells up again, just remember, my life is in your hands. 
It's this moment in the fable. Here's what it says. He says, what should he do? If I let go all my life, I'll know that I let this other die. If I stay, I risk losing my momentum towards my long sought after salvation. Either way, this will haunt me forever. In a bit of irony, he thought to himself, I should jump off too. That'll teach him a lesson. Of course, it would also teach me a lesson, so he chose not to. But time went on. No change. A critical moment was drawing near. The opportunity, the door would close. And he had an idea. And he looked down and he said, I can't pull you up on my own. I'm not strong enough. But, but if I pull up and you begin to twist around and wrap the rope back around your waist, the rope will shorten and maybe then you'll get close enough to the top that you can climb over the edge and that you'll be okay. He shares the idea. But the other guy wasn't interested. So he yells down, what do you mean you won't help? I told you, I can't pull you up myself. I, I don't think I can hang on much longer. See, at this point, he knows that he's either going to get so tired he lets go of the rope, or he's going to get so hungry he starves to death. He says, the point of decision arrived. My life for the other. Then it says a new idea hit him. A revelation. So new, in fact, it seemed heretical. So alien was it to his traditional way of thinking. He yells down with a bit of confidence. I want you to listen carefully, he said. Because I mean what I'm about to say. I will not accept the position of choice for your life. Only for my own. The position of choice for your own life, I hereby give back to you. The man yells up, what do you mean? I mean, simply it's up to you. If you decide, or you decide which way this ends. I will become the counterweight. You do the pulling and I will pull and we will bring you up. As he said this, he began to unwind the rope from around his waist he braced the rope in his hands. The guy at the bottom yells back, you cannot mean what you say. You would not be so selfish. I am your responsibility. What could be so important that you would let someone die? Do not do this to me. The man on the bridge said he waited a moment. But there was no change in the tension of the rope. The man at the bottom was making no attempt to pull himself up. So he looks down. He says, I accept your choice. And he let go of the rope. He walked off the bridge. And he continued his journey. What do we make of this story? What do we do with it? I think that there are some imperfect relationships in our lives that we want to make perfectly imperfect, but the other person isn't willing. And so we find ourselves 
like the man on the bridge, holding this rope with the other on the other end. And, and we feel an obligation to keep holding on. We feel this responsibility to continue to work to make this imperfect relationship perfectly imperfect. And some of you have been holding that rope so long and you're so tired and you're so hungry and you're dying. Or if you're not dying, you're, you're missing the opportunities that God has for you. The doors are closing. And to me, this fable, this parable is so powerful because I think it gives us permission to realize that once we've done everything we can do, once we've had that conversation with God and we've had that conversation with ourselves, if the other person is not willing to have that conversation, once we've given them that choice to come to the table, we've offered to talk with them wherever they want to talk, but they're still not willing. There may come a time when you have to put the choice in their hands and let go of the rope, walk off the bridge, and continue the journey. There are some relationships in our lives that sadly can become so toxic that that's the only healthy choice for us to make. And I hate to say that, but I'd also hate for that toxicity to start to creep into your life. You know, a few weeks ago, we finished up a series on the book of Leviticus. And strangely enough, it's become one of my favorite series that we've ever done here at the church. And one week in that series, I preached on Leviticus 19. Uh, this chapter that has some really weird laws in it, but some laws that I still think are challenging for us today. And in that chapter, we find words, words that are so relevant that many, many years later, Jesus himself quotes them. And see, Jesus at one point is asked by the Pharisees, what is the most important commandment? Of all of them in the Bible, what is the most important? And in his answer, he quotes two Old Testament passages. First, he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. He's quoting Deuteronomy. And he says there's a second that's equally as important. He's quoting Leviticus when he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. I was at a youth conference a little while back. One of the speakers was sharing. They said sometimes it's the second half of that that's the hardest, that as yourself part. Because if you struggle to love yourself, you're going to struggle to love others. If you struggle to treat yourself right, you're going to struggle to treat others right. I bring that up for a reason. I think that if you're in a relationship that is so toxic, it's making it hard for you to love yourself. If you find yourself standing on the bridge holding the rope so long that you're finding it hard to love yourself, then it's going to be hard for you to love others. That toxic relationship, that toxicity is going to creep into your life 
and then into the lives of the other people around you, your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your friends, your family, your neighbors, the people you go to church with. And that's not what God wants. So sometimes, so that we can continue to be able to love ourselves and to love our neighbors, we have to be willing to do what we can do, but then to put the choice in that other person's hand and to walk off the bridge and to continue our journey. And I know that's hard. But sometimes it's necessary. But here's what I love about the Christian faith. Actually, before I finish that thought, let me share this. Um, I'm a nerd. Uh, You know that. I know that. I also love to write. And when I write, I get really nerdy. So much so that I have favorite punctuation marks. I I know. I know it's weird. Uh, But my all-time favorite is the ellipsis, the three dots. I I love to use it in my writing. Because it's kind of a way of saying, this is open-ended. It's not over. There's more. This isn't the end of the story. And my favorite thing about Christianity is that uh, all of our stories have an ellipsis at the end. There's always a chance of something more. I mean, think about it. Think about Easter. Here you have this moment where Jesus dies. All hope is lost. Dot, dot, dot. And yet, resurrection. It wasn't the end of the story. There was still hope. And so as Christians, as we make the decision to walk off the bridge and to continue our journey, we leave a little ellipsis at the end of those imperfect relationships. A little bit of hope that God might still do something with them. And to illustrate this, I want us to turn in our Bibles uh, to Luke 15. This parable has often been called the greatest story in the history of the world, or at least the most well-known. This is one of the stories that even if you don't read the Bible, you've probably heard before. Dale, if you're watching or listening, uh, Dale has often told me uh, that when he uh, listens to either Pastor Dan or I preach, uh, he will open his Bible and in the margin of whatever we're preaching on, he'll write the date and then he'll see when we preach about it again. Dale, I know there are already dates written next to this passage, but you're going to need to write another one because I'm going to talk about it again. I'll probably talk about it again in the future. And we're talking about the story of the prodigal son, the story in Luke 15. Now, I'm not going to dive too deep into this because I know we've heard it and preached about it before. I encourage you guys to go back and read it again. One of the things that I love about this story is that every time I go back to it, I feel like something new jumps out at me. And in preparation for this week, that was true. But here's the general gist of what happens. There's a father with two sons, an older son and a younger son. And at some point, the younger son comes to the father and says, I wish you were already dead. I wish I had my inheritance now. The father's deeply hurt. 
but he gives the son his part of the inheritance. He sends him on his way. This was a deeply painful experience. I've read a little about the culture surrounding this, and in some Jewish communities when this would happen, the village would walk to the edge of town on the boundary. And as the individual that wanted to leave left, they would take a bowl full of grain or corn and they would drop it on the ground. And as it shattered, it represented the broken relationship that would never be put back together between them and the individual that was leaving. There were a lot of tears involved here. As a father, I can't imagine what he felt. Then there are two details here that I think are so interesting. The first is this. This story does not include any dates or any timestamps. What I mean is that we don't know how long the son was gone. It just says that he went to a foreign land while he was there. There was a famine. Because of the famine, he had to take this job working for a farmer and feeding the pigs. Now, if you go back and read Leviticus, you'll quickly discover Pigs are considered unclean. In many ways, they are the mascot of unholiness. Jewish people were not supposed to touch them, much less feed them. And that's his job. But he becomes so hungry, it actually says that he longs to eat what they're eating. Now, every person hearing this story would have known what that meant. He not only was working with pigs, he did... He was so desperate, he wanted to live like a pig. You could not get any more unholy. He was as far from God as he was going to be. He was at the rock bottom of his story. But it doesn't tell us how long he was there. We don't know. But then we read this line in verse 20. When the, when the son finally decided to return home, to his father. It says, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and he embraced him and he kissed him. But I love that phrase, while he was still a long way off, because you know what that means? It means the father was watching. It means the father was waiting. You know, I like to paint a picture of stories when I read them in scripture, and I just have this image in my head of this Jewish father getting to the end of his work day. Everything in the field is finally done. His wife is inside working on dinner. Oldest son is out back finishing his task. The father walks onto the porch and sits down in his chair and just begins to stare at the horizon, looking at the sunset. And he's there for a great long while. Finally, his wife pops out and says, Honey, our food's getting cold. What, what are you doing? Without even looking up, he says, you know what I'm doing. I'm watching. I'm waiting. Today might be the day my boy comes home. See, he left an ellipsis at the end of his son leaving. And he He waited. And he watched with a little bit of hope that God might still move and make that imperfect relationship perfectly imperfect. 
And so, yes, as we sometimes have moments where we need to let go of the rope, walk off the bridge, and continue our journey, we leave a little ellipsis at the end, a little bit of hope that God might still work. We still watch and wait. We still pray. We still leave the door open that someday that individual might want to come to the table and have that crucial conversation. Yeah, I think this is especially important in the relationships in our lives that we'll never get away from. The ones that we can't walk away from completely. Whether that's with an ex that you have a child with, or maybe a sibling, or your own child, or your parents. Someone that you're going to continue to, to see throughout your life. But that relationship is broken. And you've tried, you've talked to God, you've talked to yourself, but they won't talk to you. You might have to let go of the rope. You can't keep holding on to that, but leave room for a little hope. I'll end with this story. I talked to my wife, Sally, in advance to make sure it was okay to share this, but the story's about her mom. And um, at one point in her mom's life, when Ollie was little, uh, her mom really struggled with drinking. And she became an alcoholic. And I always hate that word because I think we always have an image of somebody stumbling down the street with a brown paper bag, but that isn't what it looked like for her. It was her sitting on the couch in the basement, drinking wine from the moment she got up to the moment she went to bed, never striving to have a job, or to invest in others. She was just consumed by that. And it got to the point that it was really, really difficult, especially for my wife, Sally. And I came home one day from seminary and I shared this parable, this fable with her that we had talked about in class. And it, it was really profound for her too, because it gave her permission to, to let go of the rope at least a little bit. We didn't completely walk away from that relationship with her mom, but we did have to put up some boundaries, create some space there. We put limits on her being able to spend time alone with Ollie or how much we loaned her money or how much we gave to her. It, we just had to put some of that choice back on her, let go of the rope a little bit because that relationship had become toxic and that toxicity was spreading. And that was really difficult. It was really hard. There were a lot of nights that my wife Sally was just broken over it, cried over it. She'd had the conversation with God. She had had the conversation with herself, but her mom was unwilling to listen, to have the crucial conversation that needed to take place. My wife, Sally, left an ellipsis in the story, a little room for hope, for resurrection. And it came about in an odd way. One day, her mom wasn't feeling well. They went to the doctor to have it checked out. And they discovered that she had cancer, aggressive cancer. 
So aggressive, she never actually went back home. From that point forward, she was either at the hospital or at a hospice facility. But because she never went back home, she never drank again. And after a couple weeks, my wife was coming home from the hospital saying, hey, I hate this cancer, but I'm starting to see my mom again. Like we're having real conversations again. And my daughter started going up to the hospital and spending time, and, and she got to really be introduced to her grandma, to mamma. And, um, and there were some crucial conversations that got to take place over those several months. Conversations that led to healing. So much healing that when we think back on Sally's mom now, we don't think about the time that she was an alcoholic. We think about the mom and the grandma that she was. So even though you might have to let go of the rope, you might have to walk off the bridge and continue your journey, keep an eye on the horizon. Keep watching and waiting. A little room for hope. An ellipsis. You never know what God's going to do. He might, at some point, make that imperfect relationship perfectly imperfect. Now, I'll end by saying this. I know that some of you watching today have a relationship in your life that you need to make some difficult decisions about. I'm praying for you. If you want more prayer, you can click the prayer button on the menu here and submit that request and our prayer team will be praying for you. If you need to talk it out, you are more than welcome to email me. My email address is in the notes. But I know you can do this. And I know that God can still use this. I'm praying for you.